The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. He was, uh, he had just been sick. He was going to be sick again. He could feel it. Uh, he didn't know how because he didn't have anything on his stomach. He hadn't hardly been able to eat for the past 24 hours. And he was, uh, he was nervous. Uh, he couldn't get himself together. He'd been sick a couple of times actually already this morning and he was trying to gather himself together, which is unlike him because he usually had things under control. One of the things that he was known for was having it all together, being cool under pressure, having a steady hand and a steady mind, knowing what to do at just the right time. Things didn't fluster him. It's one of the things that had gotten him into the position that he was in in life and that he kind of, no matter what life threw at him, no matter what circumstances happened, he had it together. He had the right answer. He could look the part. He looked strong on the outside, even whenever he wasn't sure on the inside. And so this was new territory for him. People had actually started to comment that uh, he didn't quite look himself. They were wondering if he was sick, if something was going on. His mind was turning again. In fact, he was trying to think of a different plan, a different way. He would love to chicken out, to forget all about this crazy idea. But he just couldn't think of anything. He wished that he just didn't care so much. That sounded like the best option. He's been doing a lot of praying lately. Quite frankly, a big subject of a lot of his prayers have been for God to take away the fact that he cared so much out of his mind and out of his heart. That sounded like sweet relief just to not to be able to care as much as he did, to be like the rest of the people around him who just, life just seemed to go on for them and they didn't care so much. But this thing, this itch, this splinter in his mind had been working and gnawing at him and so it had been gotten to the point where he could, he could hardly, he could hardly eat, he could hardly think, he could hardly sleep without, without thinking about this thing. He was gnawing at his mind. Why couldn't he just not care like everybody else and just go about with his normal life just like the people around him seemed to be doing? There were, in fact, why did it even seem to matter? He was so far removed away from the problem. The problem. It didn't even seem like a problem to most people. They heard the news and their life seemed to go on just like normal. But for him... For some reason, whenever he heard about the problem, it had captured his heart. He had never seen the city of Jerusalem. He had never seen the walls surrounding it strong. He had never seen the gates up. He had never seen the temple glisten in the sun. He had never lived in the city of his fathers and their fathers' fathers. 
He never lived amongst his people, among the promised land that God had given them. And the city that God said would be the jewel that he would declare his glory among the nations in. He had never seen it. He had never lived there. But for some reason, when the word got back to him that the wall was torn down and the gates had been destroyed by fire and the people of God were living in shame, it captured his heart. They had disobeyed God and God had scattered them as he promised. He said, if you follow me, I will keep you and my, your nation will be blessed. But if you go away from me, I will scatter you across the ends of the earth. And then when you turn back to me, I will bring you back. And now he was bringing them back. So people had already started to congregate in Jerusalem and they had rebuilt the temple. But this wasn't what God had called them to. God had called them to be a restored city that was declaring his name among the nations. But here they were. Living in a temple, in a, living in a city with walls that were torn down, with gates that were burned by fire, a city that was just ruin of its former self. That could not be. And now he couldn't get the crazy idea out of his head. It was a crazy idea. Not only had he never seen the city of Jerusalem, he'd never built a wall before. He wasn't a builder. He was a sommelier to the king. He knew wine. He knew the vintage. He knew how to smell poison. That's why it kept him alive. He knew how to smell the poison or keep it in sight so that he knew it was safe to drink before he tested it, before the king had it. He was the last person that you would expect to be thinking about this crazy idea. But for some reason, he was sure he could do it. Not only that, but he was sure that he had to do it. Or at least to try. He had become sure of one thing. He could no longer stay still. It had been four months since he had heard the news. And he had been fasting and he had been praying. They've been thinking and they've been planning. What if I'm the one who's called to be a part of going to Jerusalem and building the wall? What if the reason that I care so much, the reason that I have this access to the king, the mightiest, strongest, most powerful man on the face of the earth, what if the reason is that I'm the one who's called to do it? That's what had led him to this moment. All the prayers, all the thinking, all the planning, all the dreaming for four months had led to this one moment as he stood before the door, his hand shaking before he reached out to the knob. He knew what he had to do, and he knew it had to be today. He had to ask the king for permission to go to Jerusalem. And not only for permission, he had to ask the king for all the provisions that he needed to go build the wall. The wall, by the way, of a city that had previously been an enemy city, an enemy kingdom to this king that he was asking. He reached his hand out to the door. And with one last prayer, he opened it and walked in. 
there will be many great struggles and many great victories over the next particularly 12 years of Nehemiah's life. But I'm convinced that this day, if we could ask him, I, I'm convinced that this day, he would have said, was one of the best in his entire life. Because it's the day that he stepped out in faith on a limb and he saw God provide an amazing way. We've been talking about Nehemiah. He was the cupbearer to the king of Babylon, of king of Persia, the mightiest king, the mightiest empire on the face of the earth. And he was a Jew. And in this mighty position, the king's most, one of his most trusted, trusted servants, he had heard news that Jerusalem was in ruins and the people were living in shame and it had captured his heart. The Bible says in, the, in chapter 1 that we just finished going through last week, it says that, that he had spent four months fasting and praying about the problem. We talked about last week about how he was a man of an arrested heart. Two weeks ago, we talked about how he had a burden, but then we, last week we talked about how that became a, a heart that was an arrested heart. He, he couldn't get it out of his mind. He couldn't get it out of his head. He was gnawing at him all the time, and he knew he had to do something. And so this day, in Nehemiah chapter 2, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. In the month of Nisan, drive a pathfinder, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, so the king was having a feast, Nehemiah had chosen the time. That's why he knew it had to be today. The king was having a feast. The king was in a good mood. It was just the right day. It was just the right time. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. There's a reason, because if you were a servant in the king's presence, we know from some other records at the time that if you were, if you were a servant in the king's presence and you were sad in his presence, that he could actually have you killed. Because, you know what, if you're the king and you have all power, you don't want anybody to give you bad news. He's like, hey, I want everybody to be happy all the time around me. I want you guys to be funny, be on your, on your game. And so Nehemiah was obviously, if he had been moved up to the cupbearer, he, he was obviously really good at that. But today, and what we, what we don't know is, why today? Now, I've not been sad in the presence. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? Why today? Why today? Was he just over? He'd been, this, he'd been known, knowing this news for four months. It wasn't like he just heard it. Today he was sad. I think it was a strategic sadness. He'd been sad the whole time, but I think today he let it show in his face because he knew it was just the right time. He was stepping on a, on a limb. He'd never been sad in his presence before. He was hoping God would show up, but it, it may not be in the card. The king could just say whatever. He could fire him, he could kill him, he could do all kinds of things to him. But he steps on the limb. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? The king said, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. It means like he threw up in his mouth. And I said to the king, now this is, this is a, 
He had been thinking, he had been praying, he had been planning, and had been working on his heart. It had gotten to the point where it wasn't, it had moved from just being a good idea to go back to Jerusalem and build the wall to it had, it was something that had to happen. He had to do this, or he had to at least give it a try. But he could not imagine life without doing it. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. So he's very wise in this. He starts out by, by saying, you know, he butters him, butters him up a little bit. Let the king live forever. And then he said, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, like I said before, this is a gutsy move because Jerusalem had been an enemy city. It was a mighty city when it had its walls up. It was a powerful city, and it had been it had, it had been an enemy to the predecessor to the Persian Empire. And so, asking the king to go back and build the walls of the city is one thing. Ezra had already gone back to build the temple. It's one thing to build a church. It's another thing to build an army, right? And that's basically kind of what the, all, what the wall was. It was, its, it was its missile defense system around the city to keep it safe. But he says, why should I not be sad? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? Nehemiah had stepped out on a limb. And now it was that precarious place where the limb was shaking. And the king said, what are you asking me? So then he prayed again. So I pray. This is interesting in Nehemiah, by the way. Oh, we've been talking the past two weeks is that just the issue of prayer. 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah, and we have 11 recorded prayers of Nehemiah. So I prayed to the God of heaven. He just threw up a quick prayer. Help me, God. Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So this is interesting. Sometimes I think in church, uh, most of us here have some kind of church background. Um, we either have people or churches that kind of veer onto one side or the other. So we have people that, we just got to pray about this. We got to pray about this. We got to pray about this. And they never seem to do anything. Like, anybody like get keyed in on church talk? Like when you ask somebody, hey, will you uh, serve in the nursery? Or hey, would you consider uh, doing this or joining this? And what, what's their answer back to you whenever they don't want to say no? I will pray about it, which is Christian code for, there's no way in heck I want to do that at all. And I'm going to tell you this because who's going to trump prayer? Like, I'm going to go pray about it. God told me not to do this. Okay, I guess I can't argue with that. You just invoke the name of God in this. I just ask you to make coffee. That's all I ask you to do. I don't know why you'd have to pray about that, but, you know, whatever. And so we have these people that are like always praying about stuff but never do anything. And then we have the planners and the strategy guys who never seem to ask God anything. They just go with their plans. And they think like that. And sometimes like those of us that veer in that camp, like we think like uh, having a good plan, having a good, having a good strategy is the answer like for church and for the deal. And, and sometimes it seems like we have people that are either planners and we have people that are prayers. They never kind of meet in the middle. But what you see here in Nehemiah is it says that he fasted and prayed for four months. 
But obviously, he wasn't just fasting and praying. Because whenever he got into this position where he had been praying for it, fasting for it, God, would you open the door for me to give me favor with this man, which is what he says at the end of chapter 1, grant me mercy in the sight of this man, whenever I actually like, had the right moment and I asked him this, give me favor, give me mercy with him, but then, not only had he been doing that, but he'd been thinking and he'd been prepping, he'd been trying to do his homework and figuring out what he would need. Like, if, if God works in this man's heart and gives him favor, what's he going to need to do then? He didn't want to be like the dog that finally catches the car, right? What are you going to do with it once you catch it? He had done praying and prepping and his homework, and so he knew whenever he talked to the king, and he said, and the king said, okay, and God had moved. God has already done a miracle, by the way, when the king says, what do you, what do you need? When will you return? And he had an answer for him. How long would be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So he already knew this is how long it's going to take. In verse 7, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may pass through and that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So he knew, like, if he's coming through, like, there's no telegram, there's no, like, email for the king to send, hey, I'm sending this guy through. Like, he's just got to go through with this contingent of people to go build this wall. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a political, like, almost like an army coming through. And then he says, I'm going to need some, I'm going to need permission. I'm going to need them to tell you that, that this is legit. Verse 8, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple. So he done his homework. He's not just saying the wall in general. He wants the, the gates of the fortress of the temple. It's a particular fortress that was a part of the wall that was near the temple. And for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. He had been thinking about this and planning it out, strategizing. He knew exactly what he would need. If God granted him favor and did the miracle, this is what he would need to do it. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. What we see in this story so far in Nehemiah is we see uh, four different layers of things happening. Uh, we see, first of all, awareness. Awareness. He heard of the issue in Jerusalem. The walls have been torn down and the gates are burned. And he became aware of a problem. He became aware of the problem to the point that it had overwhelmed and overcome him and it had burned him so much that it, it didn't just lead him to say, hey, this is an issue. It burned him so much that he came to God in prayer and poured out his heart to God and said, God, what part do I have to play in fixing this problem? He became aware of the problem and it stirred his heart. He became aware, not just mentally, but emotionally aware of the issue that was going on around him. It had burdened him. And we see that awareness then leads to vision. As he was thinking and praying and he was burdened by this, he had a vision. Hey, what would it look like? I'm the cupbearer of the king. I had access to him. What if God gave me favor of the king? What if I'm the Jew that is here in service to the king because God has given, given me this moment to get favor of the king to be able to go back to Jerusalem and build the wall, even though I've never... You know, I've hardly put up blinds. It's kind of like, maybe he's, I picture him kind of like me. Like, uh, like, I pull out a drill and put up blinds in the house. And it's like, woo, I did something like, all right. I used a screwdriver. I'm like, yes, that was a mighty project. I did awesome. Uh, and and I, I mean, he's a sommelier to the king. I can't picture him, like, doing a lot of, maybe he did a little DIY projects around the house. And, 
build a pergola. How do we have friends that were those those kind of friends? Anybody have those friends that have weekend projects every weekend? And they're like, what'd you do this weekend? Like, oh, we built a pergola in the backyard. And, oh, we built some planters. And, you know, we did some landscaping. It's beautiful. It's here and all over the place. It's awesome. We built these lights. And everything's like... We did these bookcases in our house. I'm like, you are terrible. Saturday is to sit around and do nothing. But you do all these projects. Maybe he was that guy. I don't know. But anyway, none of that compares to building a wall around the city. But he had a vision. He started thinking about what would it look like if God used me in this position that I have. And if I leverage my position, my talents, this opportunity for the goodness, for the good of God and the glory of his kingdom. Awareness leads to vision. Vision leads to strategy. So he didn't just stop there. He didn't just like like dream and say, man, what if God put me in this position? And he just like did nothing and kept on praying. He started strategizing. He started to think about what would I need? What would I need to learn? I picture him like checking books out of the of the imperial library about building walls around cities. And he started to study it and started to ask people who knew what was going on. He started to, to plan how much, how much would it take? What would I need to do? What, 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 what obstacles would be my way? What would, if I asked the king and I have like one shot to ask him what I need to do, like what do I need to ask him for? He had it all lined out. Awareness leads to vision. Vision leads to strategy. And strategy leads to courage. Because he had prayed, because he was aware, because he was burdened, because he had a vision, because he had planned, then he had the ability and the opportunity to be courageous when the right time was there. And he had to take the last bit of courage that was in his soul and open that door and be sad in the king's presence to see where that led. Awareness leads to vision, vision leads to strategy, and strategy leads to courage. The title of this series I've been working through Nehemiah is A Great Work. It's what Nehemiah described later on we're going to get to is an awesome quote, but uh, whenever uh, I don't want to cheat there, but it's really really cool time in, in Nehemiah and he says that his, his enemies come up and they, they're trying to trick him. They say, hey, come meet us over here. We're going to talk about things. And Nehemiah says, I cannot come down because I am doing a great work. Nehemiah had a great Work that had captured his mind and heart. Awareness led to vision. Vision led to strategy. Strategy led to courage. Nehemiah was stirred by a problem that gripped his heart. The city lay unprotected and in ruins. And nobody was doing anything about it. We have our own problem here along the Grand Strand. 300,000 people live here in this area. And it's growing, growing fast. Out of those 300,000 people, at least 60% of them are not disciples of Jesus Christ. That means there's a hundred, at least 180,000 people in the greater Grand Strand area who are not disciples of Jesus Christ. The, the current, like the demographic, demographics that I've read also said that around 75% of the people in the Grand Strand area don't regularly attend a church. That means there's 225,000 people in the greater Grand Strand area that have not found a church home, which is kind of crazy because you drive by churches everywhere, right? We're right in the buckle of the, of the Bible Belt. It seems like everybody goes to church, but 225,000 people estimated are not 
do not have a church home. There are uh, around or just under 10,000 students at Coastal Carolina University. It is, uh, since I graduated college, it has nearly tripled, I graduated high school, it's nearly tripled in size. It was about 3,500 students at that time. It's nearly tripled in size. Uh, it's an estimated 2% evangelical Christians on campus at Coastal Carolina, right here. Isn't that crazy? That means there, there might, and the people that I talk to that are on campus there, they say, I don't know where those 2% are. So there might be somewhere around 200 born-again evangelical Christians on the campus at Coastal Carolina University. That means there are 9,800 students at CCU whose destinies are not governed by Jesus. And where do they come from? Over 60% of the, of the student population are from out of state at Coastal. And a vast majority of those are from New Jersey and New York and Maryland, from the most unchurched areas of the country. The, the northeast of the country, New York and, and above, are, are the most unchurched area of the whole United States of America. And they're coming from here to coastal, not only to coastal, but they're coming here to live. What Megan and I, when we look down our backyard in uh, in Waterford here in, in Carolina Forest, there's a Yankee flag, a Mets flag, a Yankees flag, and a Yankees flag. The people over here, I don't think they're baseball fans, but they're from they're from New York as well. The, the, our whole our whole city are all from our whole our whole street all from New York. The people that call Carolina Forest Yankee Stadium because there's so many people here from New York and New Jersey. They're moving here. They've come here from the most unchurched areas of the country. People come here from all over. What are they looking for? They're looking for the endless summer. They came here. They, they vacationed. They partied. They had a good time. They're like, hey, it'd be fun to live there. So they move here. And then just like any area, no matter what area you move, to, move for, whatever dream you're chasing, it cannot answer the longest, deepest desires of your soul. They come here, they search for the endless summer, and then they get here, and they get disappointed. Whether they're a student, or they're a retiree, or they're a young family that's passing through, they get disappointed and disenchanted because the city doesn't live up to their dreams. You only go to the beach so many times, you only play so many rounds of golf. Yeah, and you only play so many rounds of golf, David. You only play so many rounds of golf, only go to the beach so many times, only party so much, until it's just like, it's just not doing it for you anymore. And then when that runs out, what do you do with Myrtle Beach area? There's not much. And so they get disappointed, disenchanted, and they move on. The church growth has not matched the population growth in the Myrtle Beach area. If every church in the, in the Myrtle Beach area was healthy, we would need more churches in order to match the population. We've nearly doubled in size in the past 20 years of population here on the, the Grand Strand. But the truth is that, just to be honest, between us here, the truth is that most of the churches in the Myrtle Beach area are not healthy. The majority of the churches in the area where we've all known or we've experienced the horror stories, they seem to chew up congregants and then spit them out on the other side. Many have proven to be either ingrown relics of traditionalism. You have the, they sing the hymns and they do the deal, but it's just kind of like empty tradition. Or boxes of religious entertainment that tickle the ear and tickle the taste buds but leave bellies whether there's gray hair and hymns or kicking bass and fog most churches in the Burbage area, not all churches but most churches in the area do little more than proclaim life improvement through morality 
Here's how to have a better life through being a more moral person, which is not what the gospel says. The gospel says that you are separated and lost and dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus Christ did for you what you could not do on your own. It's by putting your faith and trust in Him as your Lord and Savior that you have access to His finished work on your behalf. The answer is for not you to become more moral. The answer is for you is to bend your knee and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and accept what He has done for you. And then after that, it's not about being more moral and checking all the boxes of morality either. It's about simply appropriating what He has done for you on your behalf. So we find the vast majority of people in the area who are bound. Some are bound by irreligion. So they're seeking their own way, partying, having fun, doing the deal. They know they're not close to God. Maybe it's not even on their radar for him. They're going their own way. Or they're bound by religion, saying, you know, you need to be more moral. You need to be better. You need to be smarter. You need to read more. You need to be a nicer person. That's the answer. So this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a city that didn't exist 50 years ago. I mean, Myrtle Beach was here, but not like this. It didn't, it, Myrtle Beach didn't exist 50 years ago. So you go to other areas and, and the, within a few hundred miles of here, and they have history, they have tradition, and people move there with their families, and they settle down. But people don't do that, Myrtle Beach. They're passing through one way or the other. While they pass through, they use up the resources and the sun and the beach, and then they get, they get irritated with it, and they kind of toss it to the side, and then they move on. We live in a city that's like that. Where dreams don't come true. A city that's in the buckle of the Bible belt, weighed down by the corpses of a crusty and increasingly outdated or seemingly outdated religion. Your religion, your religion in a city that has really little um, scaffolding to keep people's lives together. The wall is broken down. And the gates are destroyed by fire. The people are in trouble and they're in shame. But who cares about Myrtle Beach? When I tell people I'm planning a church at Myrtle Beach, they're like, mm-hmm. why there? You can pick any place. Why Myrtle Beach? Just for the reasons that I was just I just named. Awareness leads to vision, vision leads to strategy. Strategy leads to courage. Our vision, our, our great work, Nehemiah had a great work. Our great work is to build a community of people who live life on mission along the Grand Strand. We want to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. That's our mission. Our vision, we, don't, uh, we haven't talked about it a lot uh, on Sunday mornings, but our vision is to plant uh, a community group or a C group in every neighborhood and churches in every community along the Grand Strand area. We have a passion to reach young men, because young men in America are the most unreached people group in America. Guys between the ages of 18 and 40 are not likely to, to be in a church at all. We have a passion to reach young men and see them become disciples, to train them and call them to be godly men who reject passivity, accept responsibility, and lead their families and their church and their businesses courageously. We're young and we're new, this church. The canvas is blank. We get one shot to be the church. 
those of us in here, depending on age, depending on our future, we have 20, maybe 40 years. This is our chance. This is our shot to be the church. This is it. We have one chance to see what a church could be here in the Grand Strand area. I saw this, um, it may not affect you like it did me, I, I saw this uh, in my, uh, somewhere, Twitter or s- somewhere on the amazing interwebs over the past uh, two weeks. It's a visual representation of your life. Do you have that, Hudson? And so sometimes we think about how we, we have, uh, our life is short. But this is if you lived a long life, if you were to live to 90 years old, this is, this is your life on a screen. Each circle is a month. That's it. If you're 30 years old, that's where you are right there, that teal dot. If you're 60, you're right there in that burgundy dot. And that's it. If you picture each one of those as a chip and each one that passes, that passes away, you're tossing the chip away off to the side, off to the side, off to the side. And it just stood out to me when I saw it on the screen like that. That's it. That's all the chips you have. There's no more coming. There's no second set. This is it. But it should be exciting to us. Because the mission is a big mission. It's a multifaceted mission. It's going to need people of all shapes and sizes, of all giftings and all talents and all all abilities, all kinds of persuasions, all kinds of background, all to come together to do this deal. Awareness leads to vision. Vision leads to strategy. And strategy leads to courage. What would it look like for us, for us, Together and us, you individually, to build our lives around a passion for God to be glorified as we leverage our pit, our position, our talents, and our resources to make disciples. What would it look like in your life if you were to leverage all those chips? Like Nehemiah, that particular background he had, that particular place that he was in, that particular access that he had, if he leveraged all that for the mission. This happens as we both gather together as a community and we scatter during the week into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods. So how as a church are we building a burden, praying and dreaming and planning that God would move? That God would move, that God would give us an opportunity like Nehemiah did, that he would put his good hand upon us and Use us as we leverage our talents and abilities and giftings in the exact place where he has us. What would that look like? That's what we're trying to do as a church. We're trying to work towards that. And then how are individually, how are, how are you building a burden, praying, dreaming, and planning? Where and how can you serve? What could God do with the people what could God do with the people who, like Nehemiah, had, a, had arrested hearts that were burdened by prayer and ready for action? See, so we saw his heart was burdened, he prayed, and then he planned, so he was ready for action. 
I'm going to run through this real quick and just for you to kind of think about where do, where do you fit. I'm not talking about volunteering here at church, though that's obviously part of it, but I'm talking about where do you fit in the mission of God along the Grand Strand area? And here, here's a, just a simple tool that you could use. Um, it's, it's at the intersection of, if you picture these four circles, and one circle is the need in the area. We just, went, we just went through a quick list. We didn't even go into detail about issues of homelessness and fatherlessness and uh, poverty and just all, all the things that go along with being in this particular area and in a, in a resort tourist area. What are the need? And then what is your passion? What do you get passionate about? Like Nehemiah, for some reason, whenever he heard about the wall being torn down, it excited in him a passion. What gets you worked up? And then opportunity. Nehemiah recognized, I have access to the king, and I have an opportunity to ask him for help. And then the fourth circle. So you circle of need, the circle of your passion, the circle of uh, your of opportunity, and then the fourth circle is a circle of community confirmation. That means the people around you say, you know what? You really should do that. You're gifted at this. You're talented at this. Like, I see your passion. I think God can really use you in this. And you take those four circles, need, your passion, uh, opportunity, and community confirmation, and you put all those circles together. You find out what is that where all, the, all four circles intersect in the middle. That's where God's calling you. What is that for you? That's the strategy part for you. Aware of the problem, then have a vision for what God could use us as a church together to reach this Green Strand area. And then individually, what is the strategy? And then we have to be courageous. The burden must be so strong that when we that we step out and plan and then move to action. The burden must be so strong that we then step out and plan. It's a scary prayer to pray to ask God, where is my place? Because it's going to change your life. It's going to change you. It's going to change what you spend your time on, what you spend your money on, what you put your resources into. But why would we want to live any other way? I don't think Nehemiah ever regretted those four months that he spent praying and planning. And that morning, whenever he went to open the door to go into the king's presence with a sad face. He got a chance to tell his children and his grandchildren about how God moved in mighty and amazing ways that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. All because he took that step awareness of the problem, when that becomes a burden, that leads to vision. Vision leads to strategy. Strategy leads to courage. Let's be a people who have a burden, who have a plan, and then move to action. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.